Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Self Storage Insight Podcast. I'm Ben Shirey, and today I'm joined by Brandon Robinson. Brandon, I'm super excited for the conversation today. Uh, I was yeah. talking with talking with one of your colleagues, and uh, in doing so, he said, "You have to talk to Brandon Robinson. He is the <laughs> self storage broker king." And so, uh, really I have excited. to agree with him. Hey, I agree. <laughs> Whoever it was, awesome. I give him yeah. a referral fee. Hey, he gets a referral fee. <laughs> Absolutely. That's awesome. So Brandon, if you don't mind, kind of just uh, dive in, give us a little bit of your backstory. How did you start brokering self-storage deals? When did you start that sort of thing? Yeah. So backstory, it all started July 29th, 1984, Pomona Valley Hospital. I'm joking. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> thought we were going to get the long version there. <laughs> no. So uh, yeah. So my, my, um, my career in storage, it started in 2007. So I graduated from Whittier College. It's out here in uh, California, uh, the East Los Angeles area. And I wanted to get into real estate because I had father figures and guys that I knew from church that were in real estate at that time, making a bunch of money, right? It's at 2005, 2006, okay. where uh, you know yeah, people were just booming. making money. And, yeah, it was booming, <laughs> man. You know, kind of like it was uh, two or three years ago, right? Right. Uh, so I got my real estate license in 2007 after uh, getting my degree in business from Whittier. And I was going around just interviewing with different companies. And I linked up with a guy named Victor Martinez, who's out of Ontario, mm -hmm. California. And he had a commercial real estate group that he ran from Coldwell Banker in Upland, California. And mm -hmm. he was looking for somebody to do storage. I actually, I actually didn't even know you can sell storages. I didn't know that was a thing that mm -hmm. people could actually sell and buy these storages as an investment. Right. I for yeah, I, I was looking to do something that was a little bit more exciting and sexy. Office, retail, apartments. Absolutely. And he was like, <laughs> "Nope, I'm looking for someone to sell storage." Uh, that that was kind of <laughs> like a niche. Right. <laughs> it was a niche he was carving out because he was already doing mobile home parks. Now he wanted to do self-storage and just have a niche where he, he could be specialized. Absolutely. So that's how I got into it. Okay. And that was in uh, 2007, March 2007. Awesome, man. What a turn of events, too, going from like March of 2007 right to today. Storage, I mean, right. the change that it's made. And I mean, for sure, coming out of college, looking for something glamorous and uh, storage yeah. is the exact opposite of uh, <laughs> of what you were probably expecting. And you know what? It was not glamorous back then, right? When I first started, it was what how can I it was it was kind of like the dog of real estate. It, it wasn't something where a bunch of institutional money was being thrown at. There right. was very few lenders that would lend on storage. Uh it wasn't as technologically advanced as it is today. Sure. Right. Like when I first when I first started selling storages, you, most people advertised in the yellow pages. Mm -hmm. which I don't know if anybody you know still knows about the yellow pages, but they would have to pay $10,000, 10 to, to maybe as much as $40,000 to get an advertisement in the yellow pages just so they can attract customers. Whereas now, yeah, whereas now you got a lot of people that just find storages uh, online and going mm -hmm. through Google and going to uh, uh, social media and things like that. Right. So how, how has that kind of changed for, for you then, as far as like, you know, attracting buyers, the, the game is completely different, right? I mean, like everybody wants to invest in storage. At least it seems like you're in these Facebook groups and tons of people are looking for their first deal. 
uh, you know, how, how much has that played into to what you do with, with your deals? Yeah, so it, it's different. The way that we find buyers, the way that we find sellers, the way that we market deals is completely different. So when I started, it was, hey, you have a book of uh, prospects, you know, paper, hard copy, and you just call and you just call all, through all of them. Right. Find someone that wants the list. <laughs> then when you find someone that wants the list, you put it on LoopNet or it was really only LoopNet at the time that was the big commercial real wow. estate MLS. Uh, put it on LoopNet or you would uh, send out mailers and or, or also newspapers. We would put stuff in the Wall Street Journal, L.A. Times. And that was the way to actually go about finding buyers. Whereas uh -huh. now. I mean, we, there's all type of resources to uh, find sellers, number one, right? We get a bunch right. of sellers that actually find us through uh, our online marketing, through Facebook, through mm -hmm. uh, Instagram, through TikTok, through uh, list self-storage. And sure. then as far as finding buyers, you know, as you said, there's all type of networks that, that are on Facebook. Uh, I'm a part of maybe 30 groups that mm -hmm. are specifically for buying and selling and doing uh, self storage, right? Yeah. And then, then there's in addition to, to LoopNet, you got CoStar, you got Crexy, List Self Storage. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just all types of ways to actually find sellers and buyers now that didn't exist in 2007. Yeah, that's awesome. So if we can kind of kind of dive into the conversation a little bit here, uh, yeah. you know, somebody's looking to buy a facility. What's something that you're going to be kind of looking for as far as you know? Everybody wants to find a good deal. What what does that really yeah. even look like? Yeah. So that's a good question. I, I would say if you're a, it depends, right? So if you're an institutional person, right? If you're prime, public, Merritt Hill Capital, one of those type of groups th that, you know, what they classify as a good deal looks different for, looks different than somebody like, you know, you and I who are <laughs> kind of smaller time guys, we don't have billions of dollars and in, in funds at our disposal. Right. So yeah, if you're an institutional person, it's probably Hey, looking for something that is uh, in a market where you have a, a three mile population above 100,000 uh, people, uh, something in a major metro area, L.A., Chicago, San Antonio, something that you're going to hold long term. Mm -hmm. Right. But I would say for the average person that we deal with, because maybe 70 to 80 percent of our business is dealing with small mom and pops, first time uh, uh, investors. And people that are just not at the institutional level, for them, I would say a good deal looks like something that is not uh, on the radar of the institutional buyer, because right. you're not going to be able to compete with uh, a public storage or or, or outbid sure. capital. So right. you want to look at deals that are not on their radar. So that's tertiary markets. That's you know rural markets that are on the path of development, on the path of progress. Mm -hmm. uh, areas that are not the major metro, but a lot of folks from the major metros are moving there because of cheap housing and affordability. Right. Right. So I would say that that would probably be the first thing I would look for. Uh, okay. next, thing, next thing I would look for is look for cities and areas where there's something there to keep the population and also um, bring in new people. Mm -hmm. So like me and my wife, we we specifically buy stuff that are in kind of smaller towns in the South and Midwest where right. there's a, a major university, a um a, a major health system, mm -hmm. and maybe a professional sports team. Because right. now you have something that keeps people there. You have some things to draw to draw folks as well. Okay. Um 
Interesting. And then I would also, yeah, yeah. And then a couple other things I would look for is look for stuff that's below 40,000 square feet, right? Okay. If you're just starting out and if you're not at the institutional level, because all the institutional guys are looking for stuff that is 40,000 square feet and above. Right. So, you know, you want you want you really want to buy stuff where there's little to no competition because the less people that you're competing against to buy a deal, the better value that you're going to get. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And and yeah. uh, one of the one of the people that I was talking to recently, uh, you know, one of the phrases they would use was, you know, you you don't always find a good deal, but you can make a good deal. Right. So That's I'm just true. kind of curious how how this would play into what you do. How much of what you're doing is looking for stuff that would be a possible conversion, an opportunity where somebody might miss it, but there's actually a potential there for a storage facility or something like that. Yeah. I, I would say maybe 70% of the stuff I do is value okay. add. Right. Um, and, and it's like you said, it could be a conversion where, uh, you know, I saw the deal last year where half of the property wasn't even built out. Right. They had ha half the property was a built out storage. And then there was a second level where the owner just hadn't hadn't yet got to actually building it out and dividing it into storage. So that's a good okay. opportunity. Those value add type of deals, right? Where you can convert. Right. There, 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 there's no tenant insurance. You can come in and charge, you know, charge tenants an extra five dollars per month over a hundred units. Now you're making mm -hmm. an extra five hundred bucks. Uh yeah, right. look for stuff where there's a uh, room to raise rents. There's room to uh room to expand, room to add RV storage. Uh, look for things where there's some man there's a manager who maybe isn't on top of their game or they could be stealing money and you can come in and really efficiently operate the place and improve the revenue. So okay. like you said, there are those opportunities where something may initially look like a terrible deal, right? Looks mm -hmm. like a four cap or a five cap. But when you do your investigation and see, hey, the rents are below market by 20%. Hey, they're not charging tenant insurance. There's no website. There's no marketing. You can actually right. turn that four or 5% cap rate deal into an eight, maybe 10% cap rate deal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of it, yeah, a lot of it just takes a lot of work sometimes too. I mean, there's going to yeah. be a lot more time investment and stuff like that into turning some of those deals uh, into a higher profit for sure. What What is some yeah. of the things that you run into, you know, with, with, you said you deal a lot with first time buyers, uh, mom yeah. and pops, that sort of thing. What, yep. what are some of the problems or the challenges that you run into when somebody goes to close <laughs> on their first deal? <laughs> so it depends, depends, depends on who it is. With the sellers, what we run into is a lot of these mom and pop sellers are still operating, not, not in the stone age, but they don't have any management software, don't have a management system in place, no website. Right. So what they do is a lot of their books and records are handwritten, QuickBooks, mm -hmm. uh, Excel spreadsheets. I have, we have one guy uh, and we actually sold, we actually, actually sold the deal, a deal I sold in Oklahoma last week, me and Milburn Stevens from my team, this guy actually sent us pictures of wow. some, <laughs> of him writing what his income and how many units he had and <laughs> and, and the really? rates. Like, he, he didn't he didn't even have it on an, an Excel spreadsheet, so he actually actually had to write it down, take a picture of it. So we run into situations like that, which mm -hmm. when you're dealing with someone getting financing, a lender doesn't want to see some chicken scratch on a piece of paper. They want to see. Sure. Hey, nice, clean books and records, management software, uh, uh, P&Ls. Also, you have issues with these sellers where sometimes they don't report 
certain income. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. It's, yep. I mean, it, 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 it works for them tax wise, but now when they go to sale, that $20,000 a year that you weren't reporting now that affects your value and it affects what the property appraises for. Absolutely. Right. So we run into that with the sellers, with the buyers, we just run into issues where they, you know, financing issues, right. Them coming up with the down payment, uh, them uh, not having the experience that, that the lender is looking for, uh, especially with certain type of loans where they were, they require you to have, uh, one or two years experience in self-storage. So that's typically what we run into. Uh, I, I would say another one we run into also is uh, helping buyers get set up with remote management because okay. with a lot of, with a lot of first-time buyers, they're buying smaller deals where they're not going to cash flow if you have a manager on site. So they have to manage them remotely right. and getting set up with that can be a, can be a challenge, but it, it works so, out. So you actually help your buyers with that? with that transition or with, with getting yeah. all that set up? Yes. Yeah. We, we actually have a, um, a document that we use internally. It's a, you know, a transition document where mm -hmm. we're transitioning all the utilities over to the buyer, help, helping them get set up with all, with the vendors in the area that they're going to need. Right. Sort of uh, like a buyer's checklist type of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. It's kind of interesting when you were saying about, you know, some of them like to report things and, you know, keep stuff off the books. I won't right. say any names. There's a, there's a guy, a storage owner local to me uh, that I, I did some construction. And so I have a pretty good uh, relationship with the builders and stuff around me. Well, this guy, he yeah. just had storage. He had a storage facility on the side. It was his side thing that he did. And he was telling me, he's like, oh, he's like, my cash payments, I didn't really record right. them. So right. <laughs> I was taking cash. He's like, I'd rather take cash than, than credit card. And he's like, well, then the IRS came in and audited him. And he had to go back and pay his sales tax because he hadn't reported any earnings on tons of these units, right? He had to go back, wow. like, I forget, four or five years, they made him go back and pay sales tax on every unit that he couldn't provide verification that it was rented and paid for. And wow. so, so he got, he got stuck to the I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if the IRS was just doing an audit and it came up that he wasn't making any money on this facility or what it was. Okay. He didn't get into the, the details of what caused the audit, but uh, okay. it is something to also, you know, be concerned about if you, if you are running a storage facility, run it the right way because yeah. the IRS is also adding employees and we know they're going to be doing a lot more things. You know, they're going to make their money back somewhere for all these employees they're adding and that sort of thing. So, uh, right. but yeah. Yeah, hiding money is not the best. Uh, I know, not man. the best business practice, right. especially if you want to sell it eventually. Uh, right. Yeah. 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 Can't do it. Absolutely. So, what what is your take kind of on so buying right now with with market rates kind of where they are, interest rates rising? What, what do you kind of see coming from interest rates in the next couple of years? Yeah. So i I think that we'll see rates continue to increase until the end of next year. And then I'm thinking after the elections, then mm -hmm. things will settle down, right? Especially depending on who gets in, right? Uh, that might make a difference, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Certain folks that, especially like conservatives, they you know, they all they're, they're all for uh, lowering rates and stimulating the economy. So right. if you get, you know, especially if you get a conservative in there, then you know they'll probably push to lower rates. But I do think that within a year we should see the inflation under control. I mean, it's getting, it's getting under control now, right? right. I, I think now we're at somewhere around 3%, right? As last I checked somewhere between three to 4% mm -hmm. inflation where a few months ago it was at seven to 8% year over year inflation. Right. 
So it, it, it is dropping. It's just not at that 2% uh, benchmark that, that the Fed is looking for. But I, I think we'll be there by next year because we're starting to see a slowdown in, mm -hmm. uh, and, and things. And we're starting right. to see real estate values decrease. So, uh, right. Yeah. So, so what are some of the benefits then, uh, in your opinion, of working with a broker as you're, as you're looking to either buy or sell a facility? Yeah. So in terms of buying, I think working with a broker helps you to cover more ground a lot quicker. Okay. Uh, I mean, you could, if you want to, and I, I know people that do this, they get out and they pound the pavement, they call, they dial for dollars, trying to find a facility that they can buy off market. Right. But if you contact, say the five, like the five most active brokers in self-storage and just tell them, Hey, look, I I'm looking for uh, this type of facility. Send me what it is that you have you can have other people doing the work for you and bringing you deals instead of you trying to use all your time and energy trying to find those deals yourself. Right. And, and then there's going to be certain people that you won't be able to reach that us brokers will be able to reach, whether it's myself or a lot of brokers out there in the Millichaps and CBREs. There's going to always be somebody that we can reach that we have a long-term relationship with that you might not have that relationship with. So mm -hmm. I would say that on the buying side, on the selling side, you're just going to get the best price by having a broker put it out on the market and exposing it to thousands of people, as opposed to you being an individual owner trying to sell it yourself off market to uh, individual buyers. Right. Because uh, with buyers that are buying stuff off market, and I know because I, I buy stuff off market as well, uh, when we see that uh, an agent or, or an owner is not represented, they don't have an agent, the place is not being marketed, we see, okay, an opportunity to buy this below market value. Because right. obviously that demand from being on the market and all those buyers dries up the price. So, mm -hmm. yeah, Absolutely. So, yeah, even with the additional fees of of paying a broker, I mean, you you typically recoup more than you would spend on those fees just by getting a better deal out of your facility. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because you're, that broker is going to give you a higher price because there's more people that, that are seeing it. Right. But for some reason, and there's some people that are just adamant about not paying a brokerage commission. Mm -hmm. right? right. I mean, they'd rather sell their place for, say, nine hundred thousand dollars themselves as opposed to pay as opposed to pay a broker five percent. And he sells it or she sells it for a million dollars. Right. Just. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, yeah, you, you won't convert everybody, but uh, oh. yeah, it is crazy to me that that thought process, because, yeah, it, if, to me, it's a no brainer. I, for one, I don't want right. to deal with all the headaches of trying to sell a facility myself, all yeah. of the calls that are going to come in, being available yeah. all of the time to show that facility or to, yeah. to answer all of the nonsense and, and weed through all that stuff. So, and, yeah, absolutely. And then the, another thing you got to think of, too, is just all the marketing resources that the broker has. Which mm -hmm, right, if you're trying to sell if you're trying to sell your place yourself, then you have to pay for it, right? You now have to pay for CoStar subscription, LoopNet, list self storage, uh, email blast database. Uh, I it, it, that stuff gets expensive, man. I mean, we pay a couple thousand a month just in subscriptions to these uh websites where we list and market properties for sale. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So you get a lot more resources than you realize it for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Well, so so with your 16 years or so in experience um, within self-storage, I know we touched on it a little bit at the beginning. You were kind of talking about, you know, how it, how it changed a little bit. What are some of the notable things that you think have really evolved with storage over the last few years or, or even just since you got into the industry? 
So the things that the notable things. Yeah. Uh, so I would definitely say uh, everything gone online and online rentals. So when mm -hmm. I, when I started in the business 2007, unless you live somewhere close to a property or had someone that lived next to your storage, you had to have a manager on site because at that point, 2007 to maybe 2000, I would say 14, over half of the people paid in cash or in check. Okay. Whereas now you have so many people that are paying online, credit card, right? Uh, ACH, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, also, in terms of just getting new renters, most of the new rentals were actually people that came into the facility to see the unit before they booked it. Uh, they would see a, right. a yellow page ad, they drive by, and they would want to actually come in and speak to someone and sign a physical contract before yeah. they got a unit. Whereas now, Hey, you can see it online. You got pictures, you got drone video, rental contracts are online. Uh, so yeah, I, I think definitely the way that people uh, attract tenants and uh, storage being online is is one of the biggest changes that I've seen. No key doors. Over the last few years, I mean, a lot of tech companies have really started to put yeah. some money into storage solutions. And yep. I mean, you know, as the industry grew kind of in, you know, it was a more recognizable investment that people were really taking serious, then, you know, the, the tech companies are going to follow that money and, and try to get their hand into it. And uh, so, so there's been a lot of developments as far as even like AI and chatbot supports right. and things like that over the last few years yeah. that I think are really going to shape the next couple of years, right, for for these things that we're going to see with storage. Yeah. Even, uh, even things like online auctions, right? There, there was right. no such thing as online auctions before what, 20, I don't know, 17. Yeah. Right. The auctions were all in person, put the stuff on in the paper and then people physically had to go. Now I'm looking at folks auction off units online. Oh, just like crazy. Yeah. I, I was in, I was in a, a Facebook group conversation and the person actually was like, hey, I'm going to actually do an in-person auction. And everybody was like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, right. That's old we don't even do that anymore. But yeah, right. it, it is crazy. I mean, it's in the in a matter of yeah, six or seven years, it's just completely flipped to yeah. where that's almost unheard of now. And that was standard practice before. So It was. Yeah. yeah. So I, and, and I think that helps, too, because it, it helps the profitability of the storage facilities, whereas, um, you know, in the past, you were looking at maybe 35 to 40% of your gross revenue being applied towards your expenses. Mm -hmm. right? right. But now because you can cut out so much stuff that you used to have to do in person, I, I think the expenses expense ratio was more like 25, 30% of gross revenue. Uh, you know, I, yeah. that's assuming that you're managing it remotely. Without right. There's having, a lot of variables there, but yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, so I know uh, some of the stuff I've seen recently, you know, just from different different podcasts that I listen to and everything, you know, they've been saying, you know, for the next three to five years, there's still going to be a lot of opportunity to buy in storage, but it's going to dwindle yeah. away pretty quick. What's your take on that? Like three to five years, what do you think the market looks like? I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity to buy because uh, pricing is, you know, while interest rates are going up, it makes it more difficult to borrow, but pricing pricing is coming down dramatically i mean we we reduced prices on our listings as much as 20 percent just over the okay. past six, nine months because interest rates beginning of the year were still in the fives now interest rates are in the eights right 
you know, good opportunity for that. Also, we're going to see, we're seeing a lot more seller finance deals that we're doing. A lot okay. more loan assumptions, master lease options. So people, you know, usually in times where, you know, you have uh, high interest rates and a little bit more uh, economic uncertainty. Right. Sellers are willing to be a little bit more creative. Yeah. So, so which you, is really good for first timers. For sure. You, you do see a lot more seller finance stuff happening right now. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It just, in order for, in order for sellers to get their price, they have to, I mean, if you're a seller and you want to get a 5% cap rate, well, nobody's going to buy 5% cap rate when they have to borrow at eight. So if you want that, you now have to carry financing at a 4% cap rate, four and a half. Right. Yeah. And there are some sellers that are willing to do that. They, they just, all they're looking at is, Hey, I want the, I want that top line value. So I'm willing to carry financing and defer getting that lump sum payment just so I can get this price. Right. So, so probably pretty much when you're coming into a deal, try to be a little bit flexible from both sides of it. Right. As far as trying yeah. to, trying to negotiate and how much, as far as being the broker in that, how much do you play in the negotiations between buyer seller? Do you let the buyer and seller meet together without you or what's your involvement in that? Uh, I do. So I, I mean, we, we, we tend to be pretty open and transparent, uh, but we, I mean, we initiate the, the negotiations Mm -hmm. But then from there, we do like to get the buyer and seller on the Zoom call, on the conference call, because there's always things that they might say that we forget to tell the other person, right? Right. It's like playing that telephone game where, yeah, you know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right? <laughs> they so, just forgot you told them, so it's an easy out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, but it also helps, too, when the buyer and the seller can see each other as a human being, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. When they, can get, when they can get on the phone or they can meet. They can develop a personal connection. Oh, you like football. I like football too. Oh, you're a golfer. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Yeah. And, there's still so much to be said for a face-to-face -face meeting, I think, as exactly. well. You know, business is still done face-to-face, -face, even though we try to get away from it. But. So I, I think building that personal connection and, and putting the buyer and seller together, it it, it really helps. And I think it's it's what caused what's caused us to do certain deals that may not have got done otherwise. Awesome. So I don't want to take up, you know, all of your day, any, any last minute thoughts or any piece of advice that you'd like to give to the audience as far as if they're looking to, you know, work on a storage deal. Yeah. So I, I would say um, now is, it is a good time to buy, even though, you know, you hear all the doom and gloom and blood on the streets, right. That's actually right. the best time to buy. Right. Like right. the guys I know that have made that, I guess I can say I've made them the most money in storage, selling them certain deals that they have since resold. Uh, these guys that I sold stuff to in 2008 from to 2012, man, they flipped those facilities into uh, like probably 5X or 6X their equity because wow. they bought in a time where prices were very low and mm -hmm. nobody else wanted to buy, very little competition. So yeah, I would say get out there, buy, be creative. And also, I would look at uh, the Southeast and the Midwest. Very good markets right now for for self storage. Okay. And the reason I say that because I, I mean that's where we're buying. We're buying in those areas. Right. But what we're seeing is we're seeing this migration of people from the West Coast and the East Coast, right? For some of the more expensive areas, they're all starting to migrate to the South and to the Midwest because property values and the cost of living is cheaper. Okay. So that's kind of driving a lot of the storage demand in the Midwest. And a mm -hmm. lot of the a lot of the population increase in the South and Midwest is coming from uh US 
immigrants, I guess I could say, right? right. People getting yeah. from other parts <laughs> of the U.S. <laughs> yeah. and, and if you look at, um, I don't know if you guys have, have seen the, uh, there's a, a self-storage demand. Um, what is this thing called? Uh, the, the SSA the, demand study. Yeah, yeah, the SSA yeah. demand study. Uh, when you look at that, you actually see that the majority of households in the U.S. are in the South and Midwest. And people in the South and Midwest, they, as a percentage, they use more storage than folks on the East Coast and on the West Coast. Okay. Yeah. That, that's interesting because I would think, yeah, the, the the West Coast or, you know, more metro areas, there's there's nowhere to put stuff. You got to store it. But anyway. and I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you something else, too, about the South is that their standards are not, they're not as bougie as us people on the West Coast and the East Coast, right? <laughs> okay. so, they, they, so their standards are a lot lower, right? right. Like you, you can go to um, the South and majority of the facilities, right, mm-hmm. don't have a fence, don't have security cameras, don't have paved driveways, yeah. right? And they're full and you have less issues with break-ins in certain like rural and right. So if you can find a good area. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Well, Brandon, it was awesome. I'm so glad you joined me on the podcast today. I really appreciated you taking some time to talk to us here. So uh, yeah, thank you very much. No problem. Appreciate it. Anytime. This podcast episode was brought to you by CC Storage. CC Storage is a property management software that helps you pass the fees of credit card processing onto your customers so you don't pay credit card processing fees ever again. If you enjoyed the podcast, there's a link below where you can fill out a form and be interviewed on the podcast with myself. If that interests you, please click the link below and we'll be in touch. We hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. Don't forget to check back next week for another interview with another self-storage property owner.